Hey guys, Robert Mays here. Just wanted to give you a heads up. I wrote a piece for the ringer.com on Thursday about what the Eagles need to do this offseason to maintain their ridiculous roster and all the challenges that go along with it, kind of the lessons they can learn from Seattle, just the perils of having a team that's that dang good and how you try to maintain it. So you go check that out. I would sincerely appreciate it. Also, please check out the Ringer NBA show draft class after you're done listening to this podcast. Kevin O'Connor and Jonathan Charks will be talking about the one and done rule and DeAndre Ayton. Please go give it a listen. It's of utmost importance to me as a Bulls fan because it is full on tank season. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the Ringer NFL show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. Kevin, we're back, man. Here we go. I need. I have a bone to pick with you. You just said it's full-on tank season for the Bulls. No, the Magic have a two-game tanking lead on the Bulls. That's insurmountable. The Magic are not winning two more games. Yeah, I understand that. They're only three games back in the loss column. I was looking at it yesterday just because I was still harboring hope that it could go miserably down the stretch. It's one of those things where the Jimmy Butler trade has gone too well. Like Markkanen's a real player and Chris Dunn has been interesting. I like watching him and Zach Levine's fun. I mean, it's like there are too many good players in the Bulls somehow. Like they had to trade Nico Miritich because the team was too good. The Magic have never had that problem. Hey, you know what? I, I kind of don't want that problem right now. No matter what happens, something is bound to go wrong at this point. Do you want to talk about the NBA for the whole show, or do you want to get into some other stuff? There's we not were really talking much about a lot about. of stuff. We were talking about books before the we started yeah. recording. But I mean, it's that time of year, man. No, it's not, because it's combine time, Robert. All right. We'll do plenty of looking forward here over the next couple months as the combine, free agency, the draft, all start up. Today, though, we're going to be taking a look back at some of the team-building lessons we learned from sure. the past year. So I wrote something similar to this a couple weeks ago on the ringer.com, just about some of the... Lessons that you can learn team building wise, strategy wise. I felt we felt like just because this week was a little quieter, it was a good time to kind of revisit that. Well, it's also a very forward looking thing because nothing has more influence over a season than how teams won the year before. Because I I think that we we have gotten this weird cliche mode. Well, it's a copycat league, uh, whatever. That really is true because 20 of the 32 teams are just sort of scared um, teams that lack creativity and they just uh, 20 might sort be conservative. of maybe 30 um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they lack creativity and they just sort of go uh, with the way the wind is blowing. And so, you know, I, the, the analogy I always think of when I think of stuff like this is when you look at what the Seahawks did with their defensive backfield five years ago, where they say, okay, the market on fast shutdown cornerbacks, there's only a handful of Darrell Revises. We're going to get taller guys who block the passing lanes and are maybe a step slow. That's how they, they built that secondary, the Legion of Boom and the cornerbacks were uh, in large part built on a bunch of guys who were six foot three and were undervalued prospects at that point. Uh, what happens when they become stars? Well, every team in the NFL says, well, why don't we have a six foot two, six foot three cornerback? I remember talking to Jimmy Smith, the Ravens cornerback, and he was joking about how when he was recruited out of high school, people said six foot two, you can get out a cornerback. Get the hell out of here. And then all of a sudden, he's obviously a very valuable commodity uh, once he gets to the NFL. Having said that, you know, I remember that guy, Stanley, Stanley Jean Baptiste. Is that his I, name? I certainly do. So do Saints fans. I yeah, assume. I mean, that that's a good example. I remember reporting that year 
and the Saints being like, yep, yeah, six foot three cornerback. It's what you need to compete. And then we obviously completely overcorrected. He's on his sixth team since being drafted in the second round of the 2014 draft. It is. It goes without saying that Stanley Jean Baptiste would not be a second round pick had it not been for the trends of the league. And so what I'm saying is that as we enter combine season, as we enter free agency season, that is when we start to to realize what team building lessons the, the, these teams have, have learned from the previous year. And I think there's a bunch of them. A hundred percent. And then with the corners, just as a quick aside, that's when you start moving Julio and Keenan Allen, all those guys inside and then saying the six, three guys can't move. It's fun. It's always like this cat and mouse game that never stops, which is why this interest, why this league is constantly intriguing. Before we get into some of the lessons that we learned, though, I want to hit a tiny bit of news. A ton has happened. Over the two weeks that we've been gone, we're not going to dig into all a, of it because a ton? Yeah, I'd say a lot of stuff has happened. Josh McDaniels decided not to be the Colts coach on a whim. That's true. <laughs> like, I'd say that is something that took place over the last two weeks. I mean, some news has taken place. We're not going to really hit all of it because that was a long time ago. But I do want to delve into something that happened earlier this week just very quickly because it's the most recent bit of kind of relevant news. And that's the Dolphins franchise tagging Jarvis Landry. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack here. I think it has some implications and ramifications that go beyond just that that tag. I just want to get your initial thoughts on that. Why is Jarvis Landry, and I would put Derek Carr in this group. I would put a couple of other guys, but Landry is certainly near the top of NFL players who just make people online get really angry. Like there are so many people who, when they tagged Jarvis Landry, were like, "What the hell is this?" And I understand why that is. Um, you know, the case for Jarvis Landry. I saw this stat the other day: four hundred catches in his first four seasons, and that's the most by any NFL player in history by fifty-eight catches. Number two would be Anquan Bolden. Having said that. Uh, we know the case against him, which is that those catches, uh, I, at one point, I think he was like first in receptions this year and like, what, like 23rd in yards at one point that I think the disparity, um, got a little less as the season went on, but I mean, he's a short catch specialist. He is, he is exactly sort of the modern, he's the receiver that is the, uh, the product of the modern quarterback play, which is throwing short of the sticks, going five, six yards, hoping to break one, and oftentimes not breaking one. And that's what I think frustrates people. I think that everyone, there's a lot of people in the scout tape guru community or the analytics community, certainly, who think he's very, very overrated. I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. I like, I think Jarvis Landry is a fun player. Yeah. I think tagging Jarvis Landry is a really dumb thing to do. The reason that they did it is because they want more time to try to negotiate an extension and they want... Or trade him. Sure, but I, I just don't think that people are. I don't think people are going to give up a lot for Jarvis Landry necessarily because you're going to have to give him a new contract. Sure, and so you tag him, and I think that the interesting thing with the tag is what sort of leverage does it give Jarvis Landry in a long term negotiation? With a tag, you essentially can say, "Well, screw you guys. I'll play on the tag for sixteen million. I dare you to tag me again, or then I'll be a free agent." I think the the essentially the floor with a long-term extension and guaranteed money when you're on the franchise tag for $16 million is probably next year's tag and this year's tag, which is 35 million. That's yeah. probably where his agent's going to start. Do you know how many wide receivers got contracts with $35 million guaranteed over the last decade? Uh, over the last decade. 
I'm going to say over the last five years, seven, four. DeAndre Hopkins, Julio Jones, Des Bryant, Demarius Thomas. AJ Green got $33 million guaranteed. You're going to give Jarvis Landry more guaranteed on this deal than you're going to give the, the, the Bengals gave AJ Green? He's no. not worth it. He's not in the same class of receiver as the rest of these guys. And I understand the market has been thrown out of whack. The Tavon Austin contract is weird. You know, I think that one just really screwed things up. Even kind of the Devontae Adams contract, him getting $30 million guaranteed. I like Devontae Adams, but it's a lot of money. Jarvis Landry isn't as good as Devontae Adams. No, he's not. And just, it's upsetting to me that there's like, he got a hundred catches. He's going to get this. I understand why his agent is arguing this. I understand why he thinks he has leverage because he probably does. This is about the Dolphins controlling themselves. They have $7 million in cap space as things currently sit. They don't have that many clear cuts to make. You can cut. Uh, Lawrence Timmons. I'm sorry. There's a couple guys. You can cut Timmons. You can cut Wake to save some money. But for the most part, there isn't a ton of obvious cuts that they can make. They're going to have to restructure some things. And I just think that giving Jarvis Landry 16 million this year or whatever you're going to have to give him, him an extension is not prudent considering the money you have tied up other places. If somebody's going to pay Jarvis Landry, you don't have to. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I just feel like it's the Dolphins making another really short-sighted choice. Well. I feel like we know Mike Tannenbaum's track record at this point. He swings to the fences. He likes stars. He likes taking risks, I guess you could say. And Jarvis Landry, having him in the building is better, I think, in Mike Tannenbaum's mind than than not having him in the building because at least you can start getting some value for him. Either just get him for one more year and have him on the roster or try to trade him for a pick or whatever, but don't don't let him hit the open market. I think that is that is the thinking here. But I think generally, I you know, I think the Dolphins maybe they want a security blanket for when for when Ryan Tannehill comes back this year. They're not going to. I mean, I I don't know what to expect from this Dolphins team at all. I just don't feel like they're even close. They're in in the realm of being close enough to rationalize this type of choice. That's all. That that's what I'm. Oh saying. no, I I I don't know what I would have done. I know that that's not very good takey, but I, 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 I can see the argument for both sides. And what I don't see the argument for is signing Jarvis, you being the team to sign Jarvis Landry to the inevitable, you know, 16, $17 million a year contract. That is, I don't think that that's going to happen. Period. That is indefensible. I think if he gets, say it's the DeAndre, the Devontae Adams contract, 14 and a half a year, 58 million. I still wouldn't pay him that. Not even close to that. He's a slot receiver. Um, but, what kind of comp pick would you get for that? Probably something similar to whatever you're going to get when you make this trade. You think team's going to give you a two for Jarvis Landry when you have no leverage to trade for him? On on the tag? Yeah. No. Who, no one. No. So why wouldn't you just let him walk and get the pick? It, it just, I understand that's not fun and you hate walking. You hate watching talented guys leave, but sometimes you have to do that. It's just about self-control. No, I agree. But look, Mike Tannenbaum has had a decade to show some self-control. Hey, I thought we're, this is not the argument we're having. Trust me. We can get into that, but that's an entirely different podcast. All right. Anything All right. else on Jarvis? No, I just wanted to talk about that for a little bit. I thought it was interesting. We'll have plenty of time to talk about news over the next couple of weeks here in the lead up to free agency. But we're going to get to some of the lessons that we learned from the past year, Kevin. So why don't you start us off with your first one? So I think that this is the biggest lesson we've learned in years in the NFL. Because I, I think when you looked at the final four quarterbacks in, in the 2016 season, it was Matt Ryan, Ben Roethlisberger, Tom Brady, and Aaron Rodgers. And you look at that and you say, 
okay, well, we know what wins. It's really good quarterbacks. And everything else falls in line. I think that some of the Aaron Rodgers Packers teams have been the best evidence we have that a good quarterback can solve almost all of your problems. And I would say a lot of the Patriots offenses the last decade uh, have had have been similar evidence when you just look at Tom Brady and what he's been able to mask. The final four this year turned the league on its head. And I've shared this before. I've written this before. But a couple of years ago, Howie Roseman told me that he looks at the final four of the NFL and runs full reports on them. Height, weight, college, uh, what, where are they from? You know, um, how many years did they stay in college? Do they have their college degree. Um, you know, were they free agents? How much money are they making? Uh, how many were undrafted? And the reason he does that is because he thinks if you average out the rosters of the final four teams, you can sort of figure out where the league is going and what wins. And not, sometimes there'll be anomalies or whatever, but I think it's an interesting strategy because you sort of get a snapshot of what wins. Blake I feel like po- it's a thing if you run in front office of an NFL team, you should do it. <laughs> it's not like it's a very good choice. Like it makes too much sense not to. I would do it if I were you. Yeah, that sounds right. If you, hey, you, Mr. GM, listen to that <laughs> advice from Mr. Howie Roseman. Um, although oddly enough, we were that he told me that during Chip Kelly's reign, and we were talking about some of the strategies Chip had, but Howie gave me that that little nugget then. Now, the point is the final four this year featured Blake Bortles who could have easily made the Super Bowl, had the fourth quarter gone a different way. It had Nick Foles. Nick Foles ended up winning the Super Bowl. It had Case Keenum. Case Keenum was a guy who, I have said this before, I got to training camp in Minnesota. I did not know Case Keenum was on the team until I saw Case Keenum in front of me at training camp in Minnesota. That's all you need to know about this year's quarterback market. Case Keenum, by the way, is super impressive. Great slow news day guest if you haven't watched Excellent. it. Excellent. Really enjoyed Excellent it. Excellent slow news day guest. Huge Peaky Blinders fan. Yeah. You we had the only off, ones in America. It was Jason Gallagher is the Peaky Blinders fan. I'm not, oh, I'm okay. not the Peaky I'm Blinders sorry. fan. He had an off-camera um, rant about Tom Hardy that I thought was very good. He's a big Tom Hardy guy. Having said that. That's fair. I, I mean, I understand that line of thinking. I, I've been a big Tom Hardy guy in the past. I've cooled on it since. But what cooled you on it? I don't know. I just think he had a kind of a questionable run. I mean, that FX mm. show that nobody really watched was called Taboo. The one he did with his oh, dad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just some choices that I was not a huge fan of. We've also, we don't need to get into it, but I'm, I'm not the Dunkirk guy that you are. Oh, so. boy. He, uh, Case is a big guy, fan of Legend, the movie where he, he plays both Cray brothers. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen it too. It's it's a great Hardy performance, but not a great movie. What's the you know what Tom Hardy movie I really enjoyed that is kind of, was kind of overlooked even at the time was Lock, the one where he's driving the yeah. whole time. Really good. Any movie where someone's driving the entire time is a good movie. I like movies that are kind of constrained to one location. I've always enjoyed those. I think they're interesting. Like Die Hard is the perfect example sure. of this, but there are a lot of them. Speed is a driving the whole time movie. Yes. Speed is die hard on a bus. I mean, like that's exactly what it is. Hmm. All right. So anyway, the point being that if you ran a report on the final four teams this year, you would get a very different report than, than 2016. And I think what the, the path that's now laid out for teams is that you can win without a quarterback, which we had no evidence of until this year. You can win as long as everything else is perfect. And now it's laid out in front of you. What are the odds that A, you're going to find a great quarterback and B, that everything else is going to be perfect because they're about the same. 
They're about the same. They're both really hard to do. And so I don't think it's as simple as saying we're going to build a great defense or we're going to build skill position guys around this quarterback and make them great or, or anything like that. I think that, that those paths are equally hard, but there's now two ways to do it. And that's what I find fascinating about all of this because the Jaguar, we had a discussion. I was in this room last July and we said, how many teams can win the Super Bowl? And we listed them. And I think I had 17, you had 16. And I brought up the Jaguars to you. And I said, can, are either of us listing the Jaguars? And we both said no. And the reason is because, and we acknowledge at the time the defense was going to be unbelievable, but we acknowledge at the time the quarterback was, was too big of a hole to make up. I don't think we're going to have that discussion this July. It, the next time we come up, come, come to the next version of the Jaguars, we're going to say, yes, this team can make the Super Bowl because of what we saw with the Jaguars. Now, what did we have with the Jaguars? Okay, we'll start with this. For the first half of the season, you had a, a, a really, really good Leonard Fournette. That, that dissipated as the year went on, but he was really good, and he was able to at least get the ball rolling in some of those games. I mean, the game against Pittsburgh um, in, in October, I'll, I'll remember forever. On defense, you know, Calais Campbell, Malik Jackson, A.J. Boye, Jalen Ramsey. I mean, just just an incredible collection of talent that was built, spotless, through, spotless built, unit. built through free agency uh, in large part. Campbell, Boye, Malik Jackson, Barry Church on the back end. I mean, they went out and Tayshaun they identified Tayshaun mean, Gibson. They went yeah. out and they identified talent. And I think that just the what the Jaguars did, I, I think it's not an overstatement to say what the Jaguars did last year with just having a hole at quarterback will change the face of NFL team building. I think that's fair. And I, here's, I have a few, few thoughts about this. One, I agree with you in a lot of ways. The other thing I will say is what did hold the Jaguars back from the Super Bowl was Blake Bortles. Sure. So I think that that's something always to take into account is that eventually your quarterback is going to hurt you in most cases. Yeah, the same the, can be said if you have a, the, the quickest and easiest path is to have a great quarterback. Sure. And in the same way that a Blake Bortles can hold you back from making the Super Bowl, so too can a mediocre defense if you're going the great quarterback route. Yeah. And I think that I agree with you in a lot of ways. And here's what I'll say about the building a great team, building a perfect team outside of the quarterback and how hard it is compared to finding a quarterback. I think this season taught us a lot about how quickly you can turn around a roster. Yeah. I mean, even though the Saints have Drew Brees, I think they're maybe the best example of just how fast an infusion of talent at the right positions can change everything. I mean, if you have one home run off season, you can kind of just alter the entire complexion of who you are. And that's possible now because of a few different reasons. One, teams are playing more rookies more often just because that's how it is now. I mean, you really are throwing guys into this situation because there are fewer mid-tier veterans. We know that. You're really giving your draft picks the shot right away, which gives you just an infusion instantly. Two, the cap's going up. Free agency is just more of an avenue to prudent team building than it's ever been before because the cap has exploded and there are guys to be had. And I think that that is my first lesson. I think there are worthwhile players to be had each year. It's just a matter of finding the guys that are available for the right reasons. So let's look at Jacksonville. Yep. I think Campbell and Boye are fascinating cases. Campbell leaves because the Cardinals have found some young players that they had to pay that are really promising guys. So think about the guys in that defense that have gotten extensions. Patrick Peterson, Chandler Jones just got his essentially right before Campbell left for Jacksonville. Tyron Matthew. 
So those guys got paid. There's a lot of money tied up in the defense. They draft Kim DJ as Campbell's essential replacement the year before. The succession plan is in place. You can see why he was gone. They didn't jettison him for no reason. Right. Boye becomes a star in 2016. By that point, they had already given Kareem Jackson an extension in uh, Houston. Excuse me. Jonathan Jones is on a new contract, and they drafted Kevin Johnson in the first round. Boye is an undrafted guy that just did not fit into those plans. You cannot allocate that many resources to that position. He's gone. Think about Robert Woods going to L.A. New regime in Buffalo. Sammy Watkins is available for the same reason. So is Ronald Darby. Alshon Jeffrey was not the draft pick of the Ryan Pace regime. Hurt consistently. Available on a one-year deal. Timmy Jernigan plays on a team that plays that pays Joe Flacco $25 million and has a lot of high-priced veterans. He's a cap casualty. These guys are out there. It's just a matter of finding out why they're out there. Don't find the guys that are available for no reason. It's like, oh, you know, he had a solid year. You know, don't pay Andre ba- Andre Branch $10 million if you're Miami. That that's the those are the the missteps here. There are contracts to be had. And the other side of this is it's not necessarily just the guys in free agency. I think trades have become a really big deal. Can you find a guy that has one or two years left on his contract that is available again? for reasons that make sense. Let's think about Jarvis Landry again for two seconds. If you're a team that needs a slot receiver and you're looking at Jarvis Landry, and he wants a deal that's five years, 55, with $35 million guaranteed. Why wouldn't you call the Giants, who just got a brand new GM, and call and say, how much would it take to get Sterling Shepard from you guys? Yep. He's on a million-dollar contract for the next year. He was a free agent in 2020, I believe, so it's two years' worth. Why wouldn't you call and say, what, how, what about a three for Sterling Shepard? Those are the types of choices I think the smart teams are going to make. It's exactly what Philadelphia did last year. And it's how they were able to supplement the areas of the roster, but not at a huge price. So here's what's interesting to me is I remember talking to, again, Howie Roseman on a different day. I was sitting down with them. We were talking. I think the Eagles had just gotten D'Amico Ryan's. And this is five years ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. And I I just jumped on the NFL beat like like that, obviously that summer. And I remember talking to him and he was talking about the Jonathan Vilma situation. And he was saying that the easiest way, so Vilma was traded in 07 from the Jets to the Saints because Mm -hmm. essentially he he fit better and he did not fit the Jets defense as well as he could have um, under Eric Mangini. And Roseman again. Funny now that those trades used to happen. What's last time a guy got traded for schematic reasons? Well, no, but that's that's what that's what old Howie's going at here. I love yeah. that. My first two anecdotes are just things Howie Roseman yeah, told me. Exactly. I also think it's funny that for like four years I didn't tell anyone what Howie Roseman told me because he wasn't considered. <laughs> like this is all on the record. We were sitting yeah. in his office, but like. He wasn't considered like the genius that he is now. So now it's like, well, yeah. let me tell you what Howie said. Yeah, you dig, and dig so, back in your Howie stories. Yeah, oh, here come the Howie stories. And uh, and he said that you know the best way to get a guy is the, is that there's there's a schematic change. And you know Jonathan Vilma at the time was a great example. He was obviously a key contributor to a Super Bowl team, but 
I don't think we we look at that stuff enough. Why are guys available? Are they are they August cuts because they're too slow? I mean, by the way, cap casualties are lessening by the year. So yes. you know that that's that's a that's one thing to consider is the guys are not necessarily being cut for financial reasons like they were four or five six years ago. So. I think not cut, but squeezed out. Squeezed out, right, right, yes. or, or un, unsigned. Yeah, exactly. Yes. That's not happening at the clip it used to happen at. But the, the the guys aren't getting cut, period, anymore for cap reasons for the most part, unless right. teams are dire situations. But there right. are guys getting squeezed out that are worth sure. having. Well, but so I think you just ex- exactly hit the nail on the head. You have to look at why these guys are available. Clayus Campbell is available because the Cardinals decided to use their resources elsewhere. Um, you know, it's it's, it's the Jaguars' defense is a master class at figuring out why guys are available and picking them up. Yeah. All right, buddy. Before we get to the rest of our lessons from 2017, let's take a quick break. This is JJ Reddick here to talk to you about the JJ Reddick podcast, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Currently, I play in the NBA for the Philadelphia 76ers, but you may know me from my previous teams, the LA Clippers, Milwaukee Bucks, and the Orlando Magic, or from my college days at Duke University. Being a professional basketball player, I have a great opportunity to talk to a lot of interesting people, and the podcast is a place where I can share those conversations with you, the listener. On my show, I sit down with athletes, celebrities, and a variety of other special guests. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the JJ podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts all right buddy let's keep going with these here with lesson number two what you got with your second one so i think that another really interesting wrinkle that happened last season was the emergence of alvin kamara as mm-hmm. an all-purpose i mean badass would you call him a badass <laughs> i think that's fair yes i mean he was just awesome And at a position that I think was getting a little less relevant by the year, running back. A hundred targets out of the backfield, 81 receptions, 826 yards. On the ground, 728 yards, 6.1 yards per attempt. (laughs) So ridiculous. A lot of the fantasy guys have been talking about the trend of wide receivers running less routes, Um, you know, one of the things about the top four quarterbacks in 2016, the ones that were in the conference championship games is I remember they were all the top four by passer rating at throwing to four and five wide sets last year in 2016. Yes. Yeah. And what that indicated is they were just great point guards and teams were just spreading out the defenses and letting it rip. Um, you know, it was a wide receivers league. What did the Falcons teach us that, you know, you got to have five wide receivers and just throw it all over the place. Now here comes the running back. And that's what I find really, really interesting. And we're going to see that in the same way that teams overdrafted freaking Stanley Jean Baptiste. We're going to see a couple running backs go half a round higher than they should. Alvin Kamara was a third round pick 67th overall. Um, I loved him from his testing numbers. And I got some heat because so he 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 had a vertical jump of uh, almost 40 inches and a broad jump of 131 inches. And I didn't really know who he was last year. And yet I saw those numbers. I saw some of his uh, his film and I said, this is a guy who's a player. And I, I tweeted about it and I got some pushback and uh, I will not be petty about the pushback. Now, what's going to happen this year? You have Barkley who might be a top five pick there. He's obviously very different back from Kamara, but our team's going to look at the impact that Kamara had and say, this is a guy who can be it. Um, I think, you know, 
the Leonard Fournette thing was probably a what would you say a mark against taking a running back in the fifth in in, in the top five? Yes. Yeah, and also I mean Fournette was not the, the McCaffrey was a mark against taking one in the top ten. But right, and McCaffrey, by the way. Is in this mold. Is He's in what Kamara was supposed to be. Yes. Yeah, Kamara is what Kamara McCaffrey is what was McCaffrey to be. was supposed to be. Yes. And so now it becomes finding the actual Kamara and not finding the guy who's just going to be a B plus version of that. They're going to be so. This history is going to be littered with the corpses of failed Alvin Kamara. Oh my by the way. god! I yes. mean, it's going to be so terrible because even what you said and his testing numbers are off the charts. The guy's an incredible athlete. Alvin Kamara is not good because Alvin Kamara jumps high. No, he, it just he suggests, has incredible vision and suggests, wiggle and like right. There's a baseline athleticism I like to see out of my running backs. Yes, and, but I mean his greatness is born out of like these really hard to define qualities that were difficult to see no, in college. Sean Payton even talked about this. He said if we knew what kind of runner he was, we would have taken him in the top ten, but they didn't because there just wasn't enough of that on tape to really understand how he'd be able to run in the NFL. Do you remember when it was like boy band mania and record labels in like 2000 record labels are just signing any group of, of sure. five people. And they were just like, here's a million dollars. And no one else became famous after NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. That's going to be the next three years of running back drafts. Just trying yeah, to so find true. Alvin Kamara. Alvin <laughs> Kamara is like- a unicorn. Some dude just going to be the O-town of, of the well, running see, back I, world. I'm from Orlando. And so everybody who was like five years older than me was getting a record contract if they wore like <laughs> white tank tops. Did you ever, you probably never dyed your hair. Your hair is blonde enough. No. Why I would did. I dye I did in like seventh what? grade. There was a little blonde in my hair in seventh oh, grade. Oh, Lord. It was, it's a choice I regret a lot. Wow. Life lessons from 2000. Hey, the early 2000s were a rough time for all of us, man. None of us made good choices. Not me. I I stand by all my decisions. Hey, good for you, buddy. I'm proud of you. I had hair down to my shoulders. It was was the time. It was the time. Sure. Um, So anyway, the point is, find an Alvin Kamara, but on the other hand, good luck finding Alvin Kamara. I just think it's about diversifying your skill sets offensively. I mean, that's really... uh, Finding Alvin Kamara is great. I mean, you, you should try, certainly. But even with the Eagles... Think about Corey Clement. Think about if Corey Clement's not in that game. Yep. I mean, he's such a huge part of that offense in the Super Bowl because he gives you something a little bit different. And that's an undrafted free agent, but it's other guys from this season. Just McCaffrey's going to be a good player. I think that he's going to be a fun guy who's really useful in NFL offenses. Maybe not with North Turner. Maybe maybe it's over now, but it was fun while it lasted, I guess. North Turner is going to have him as a slot receiver. He's going to try to turn him into Alvin Harper for some reason. <laughs> Well, Christian, it'd be great. It'd be great. Oh, if, it'd be great. How if old is Turner just, now? Is he 70? Uh, He's got to be at least 70, right? I feel like you just stepped all over my C-plus North Turner impression. Uh, North Turner is 65. only 65 years old. That's shocking. Well, Christian, we're going we're gonna to make you We're gonna make you run the 989. Nine. You know what? It's the offseason, so I'm going to give you the C-plus. I'm really going to give you some leeway here. Well, you're going really, to listen to North Turner later and realize that it's an A-plus impression. Uh, Even guys like like what the Bears are going to do with Tariq Cohen next year. Guys like that. Sure. I mean, I just think that they're so useful. Think about what Chris Thompson was in the passing game for Washington. I mean, there's so many guys that can just affect the game in pronounced ways from that spot. And I just think it's really worth trying to find it as much as you can. Pass catching running backs are not a new idea. But again, we, I think teams just don't do a good enough job of finding different sorts of players on their offense. Too many teams are still too homogenous. Think about what 
the Patriots have done with the three running backs that they had. I mean, look at the teams that do this shit well and try to emulate it. I guess this is the entire point of the podcast, but it's not that complicated. No, it's not at all. But I mean, we had the last 75 years of football have been like four guys going, I know what to do. And the other 28 guys going, <laughs> ah, I'm going to do it my way and going three and 13. Yeah. Do you so know true. how many freaking coaches you and I sit down with or GMs in August? And I'm always like, you're going to try this thing. And it's always some exciting revolutionary thing. That's going to be really successful. And I was like, well, we're going to do it the way we've always done it. And then that guy, I'm going to get to that. That guy is subsequently working for the NFL network. Yeah. That's draft coverage. The next year come a little bit later in the show. Don't worry. My second lesson before we get to that one is I think that what we learned from free agency last year, especially, and then as teams built their roster over the course of the summer, a little bit flooding the market at positions of need works. Just hit it as hard as you can. And the two spots I'm thinking about just to really jump out here are the Eagles cornerbacks and the Wham- the Wham's wide receivers, the Rams wide receivers. In Philly, they go out and just as many dice rolls as they can find. Yeah. Patrick Robinson for a cheap deal. Go out and trade for Ronald Darby. Draft Sidney Jones. Draft Rasul Douglas. Four guys. So you add those to Jalen Mills and Watkins or whatever corners you already have. And just say, here we go. Like, it's Thunderdome. Go get your spot. And giving yourself as many chances as you can is so important there. I mean, I remember I tweeted when it happened that the Ronald Darby trade could swing the season for Philadelphia. Like, that's the one spot that really they needed a better player. And they went and got one for nothing. I mean, they give a a pick. But in terms of the salary cap, which matters more to this Eagles team than a third-round draft pick, they gave up nothing. And it worked. They managed to find the right combination of players to give themselves a shot at that spot. And eventually it became Darby on the outside with Mills. And then you have have Patrick Robinson on the inside. Now it becomes slightly more problematic. Robinson will most likely leave for monetary reasons. Who's going to step in there? Is it Jones? Whatever. But you give yourself a shot. And then with the Rams, it was free agency and trades, but it was also the draft. So you go out, you sign Robert Woods, who, again, is somebody that was available for a reason. You trade for Sammy Watkins, available for the same reason. You draft Cooper Cup in the third round. Okay, we have an entirely new receiving core. Tavon Austin is barely on this team anymore. Let's give Jared Goff a chance. And the teams that could do that this year, I think there are a few of them. The first one that comes to mind is the Bears and receivers, just because it's something I've been thinking about constantly. And I think that Rams blueprint makes a lot of sense. So if you're Chicago... It's not about going out and finding the biggest money receiver that you possibly can. That's not the answer to this. Go out and find somebody, again, available for the right reason. Do you know who's not available for the right reasons this year? Sammy Watkins. He's not. The Rams could sign him if they wanted to. If he hits the market, he is not a guy that's available for a reason. He's available because the Rams don't think he's worth what Sammy Watkins does. I think he's incredibly talented, but that's a buyer beware sort of deal. So if you're the Bears, can you go get... Eagles receivers is also a good example of this, by the way. Sure. Can you go get Allen Robinson on the Alshon contract? Can you go sign a second tier guy, maybe in the Albert Wilson vein to a mid tier deal? Can you go find another guy in the second or third round? Give yourself chances while not necessarily breaking the bank or spending in an imprudent way. And that's the concern. That's the challenge. But I think it's worth giving yourself as many shots as you can. Don't say, eh, we need three receivers. We'll go get one. Go get four 
for nothing and see if it works out. And teams don't often do that enough. And I just feel like both the Eagles and the Rams did it so well last year. Tavon Austin has played five seasons in the NFL. Do you know how often he's had a catch rate above 60%? Zero. Once. That's even shocking. It's probably when he caught a lot of pitches that year, a lot of shovel passes. Yeah, sure. He played in all 16 games last year, and he was targeted 22 times and caught the ball 13 times. Yeah. They should have just sent him highest, home. I, trust me. I, it, they might as well have at that point, but he's making enough money that it's probably bad They should have just been like, go home. Like, would anybody have noticed? No, probably not. Would anybody have noticed if, like, Rap Sheet or Schefter on, like, January 5th just tweeted, uh, it, maybe you didn't know this, but uh, Tavon Austin hasn't played for the Rams in two years. Travis Landry's just, a better player than Tavon Austin, like, yes, significantly yes. better. Yes. But it's still one of those, like, we paid him because we thought we had to deals. It's like, no, you don't have to pay anyone. You never have to. It's not a requirement. This isn't the MLB All-Star game where you need a player in the game. By the this way, isn't how it works. By the way, the Tavon Austin thing is an, a good example of an overcorrection to an NFL trend, which was that at that point in 2013, 2012, you just yes. needed the gadget guy Yep. on the in, in, I interior. I wrote about this. Yeah. And so it's like, well, we can do this. We'd say we can draft this guy eighth overall. Hmm. <laughs> Man, that was a rough draft. I mean, I don't. You didn't want D. Milner, who was right behind him. I don't know. I mean, I guess Sheldon Richardson, five picks later. That's not bad. Uh, Kenny Vaccaro. God, what a weird draft. I mean, that was the Josh Hopkins Long. draft, right? Hopkins was in that draft. Yeah, sure. He was at 27. I mean, I think you, if the, you're the Rams, you probably take DeAndre yeah, Hopkins. Yeah, no, at this no. Point. I, I, yeah, yes. And they yeah. also did take Alec Ogletree. Great stuff. Yeah, that Travis, was the uh, Travis Frederick. Are we sure Travis Frederick is not the best player in the first round aside from Hopkins? I'd feel comfortable saying Lane that. Johnson is pretty good. Lane Johnson's pretty good. Yeah, Hopkins and Travis Frederick and Lane Johnson are still not a great first round, but all those guys are good players. Le'Veon Bell is it has the most Bell, Bakhtiari, and Travis Frederick, according to uh, Pro Football Reference value metric, are the top three players. Tyron Matthews, pretty solid. Travis Kelsey. Uh, first two rounds for the Eagles in this draft. Lane Johnson, Zach Ertz. Not bad. Pretty good. Yeah, sometimes you need to draft well in order to build good teams. That was a, was this this is a Chip Kelly year, though. He didn't, yeah, have was. Per, he didn't have personnel control. No, this was the year before that, right? Yeah. All right. Before we get out of here, what is your third lesson that you'll take away from this season? So what what happened in the last five years in the NFL cannot be overstated as far as technology and a lot of the data that is going on player tracking devices is going to become um public within the league not not to all public people and that's Mm -hmm. going to change it even further but that's a separate discussion ipads and the ability to cut film instantaneously change scouting in a way that i don't think a lot of people understand and i remember it was Shanahan, and a lot of guys have talked about this since, including including old North Turner. Well, Kevin, and <laughs> um, and the point is that you can steal plays, and Shanahan used the word steal. You can steal plays really quickly and implement them, and you can give them to every single player on video with ten different examples to their iPads if they're 
not at the facility, if they're in the cold in tub. In 10 minutes. In 10 minutes, dude. Yeah. In 10 minutes. So what happens? The life cycle of schemes speeds up. So what was a natural conclusion of that? Well, it's that this year we got to see a lot of teams make adjustments on the fly and change a lot of their offense and have backup plans. Case Keenum was a backup plan. Nick Foles was one of the best backup plans in the history of football, okay? And so what starts happening now is that we're going to study what the Eagles did with Nick Foles for the next 10 years as far as implementing the schemes that he was he was comfortable with, the throws he was comfortable with, keeping some of the stuff he liked. You know, um, uh, John DeFilippo, Frank Reich, and, and Doug Peterson met with Foles and said, what are you comfortable with? And then they built an offense around that. And part of the reason they can do that is the technological stuff. And I said this the day after the Super Bowl on our podcast, it's a bad, bad time to be an excuse maker if you're a coach because you can figure out anything really quickly. You're going you're gonna to start to see, you know, RPOs are a great example. Um, I wrote in August that RPOs are going to define this season. And there were a handful of teams. I know people don't really understand it, but the Bengals were at one point a really good RPO team in, in, yeah. in the 2016 season. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't maintain their edge uh, on, on the RPO game this year, but there were certain teams that were really good at it. And the, some of the smarter teams in the NFL said, okay, we're just going to steal those plays. In July, I'm not making this up, in July, I asked not a defensive coordinator of a good team, an allegedly good team, I said, uh, tell me about the, the secret of stopping RPOs. And he said, what? I said, RPOs. And he said, I don't know what that is. So I start defining it. And he's like, are you talking about the option? And I was like, no, I'm not talking about the option. Nope. And I explained to him, an NFL defensive coordinator in 2017, what an RPO was. It's great stuff. That team didn't make the Super Bowl. Spoiler alert. Okay. And so I think you have, you, do you think if I called that guy right now and asked him what an RPO is, he would fucking know? I yes. don't know. Does he have a job? Uh, yes, he does. Then he probably should know. He does. But yeah. it's like, that's it. And so what I'm saying, the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that we went from a league where there were some coaches who didn't know what an RPO was to every single team in the league knows how to run one and knows how to defend one. And that happened in four months and it's going to keep getting quicker and quicker and quicker adjustments. It is the golden age of football adjustments, ladies and gentlemen. Mine is incredibly close to that. I mean, it, it's very yeah. related and mine is just that coaching matters even more than everyone thinks. Sure. I mean, just think about every single example and the Eagles are obviously the best one. I mean, just the way they built that offense, the way they constructed it, the play calling, the play design, the RPOs obviously just as a way to, again, take advantage of th something teams clearly weren't ready for and that teams didn't plan for and that puts your players in positions to do well. And then combine that just with expert third down design and management. Awesome incredible pre-snap motion, understanding how to put your guys in the right positions to succeed, using Zach Ertz as that ridiculous weapon. I mean, these are all Eagles-specific things, but again, this goes down to coaching and talent implementation. Peterson is a good example. McVay is maybe the best example of just what you can do in a single year to revamp a unit in terms of attitude, structure, all of that stuff. Yep. The Chiefs offense, what the Vikings did with Pat Shermer, I mean, they 
tweaked it a little bit with Keenum, but it was really just those are the principles of that offense. We're going to use a ton of play action in order to create some easy throws for receivers that are just incredibly good at creating space. Look at what Kyle Shanahan did in five games with Jimmy Garoppolo. I just feel like coaches that are really willing to kind of go into the laboratory and say, what is next are going to succeed. And I feel like the thing that I took away from kind of the nuts and bolts of it all was just formation diversity and just dressing plays up, play action, motions. I mean, it just seems like the coaches that are really willing to kind of derive some sort of pleasure from this are the ones that are going to succeed. I mean, you look at what McVay does and what Peterson does and what Shanahan does and everybody else. And it's just like, oh, they just like this shit. They just love being able to kind of be like, oh, what if I did this? And just kind of the riffing and the tweaking, we've seen what that can do for a team. And again, I go back to the Bears and what Nagy could be for that. And just kind of bring that level of creativity, ingenuity, design, all that stuff that just was absent. You think about what the Titans are going to do with that offense. I don't know the answer to that, but they were the antithesis of it this year when it came to predictability, not playing to your guys' strengths. Essentially what you talked about with I'm bringing in, I'm going to talk to this coach about this really revamped kind of revitalizing idea about NFL football. And he's going to tell me, nah, you know, we're good. That's essentially what Mike Malarkey did to you. Dude. (laughs) That Mike Malarkey, I, I, I think about the Mike Malarkey conversation every day. Hey, and that's exactly I'm gonna what I'm keep, talking about. Dude, if, if you, if I were to text you and I was like, a coach just said to me when I said, are you going to run college spreads elements in your game? And With the, your quarterback co- and the coach Mariota. said to me, the coach said to me, I'm going to keep doing what's worked for 20 years. And I was like, tell me who said that you'd say, Oh, Belichick, uh, McVeigh, I don't know, something, some, somebody like that is really great. And I would say Mike Malarkey. Jesus Christ. This is what I'm getting at, though. I think that what the Colts did with Reich and just scooping him up when they didn't get McDaniel, just saying, all right, this guy did something that was interesting all season. Let's go get the guy that did something interesting. That's what I want to see. Are you getting a coach that really seems like he wants to figure this game out. And the best coaches this year did that. And, and I think that they really can give your franchise a jump start in a way that maybe we didn't even understand. By the way, the whole life cycle thing, the, the, that that's going to play itself out with the coaches. The coaches need to be younger unless they've already figured it out. Adapt or die has never been more relevant ever. And if you're going to hire some mediocre 50-year-old, you're much better hiring some 29-year-old tight ends coach who actually understands the modern game. I'd rather, like, there's some coaches where i just rather have, like, the, the, the quarterback's coach at, I don't know, name a good spread college school. My team hired Mark Helfrich to be its offensive coordinator. Yeah, sure. Sure. I'd rather have Mark Helfrick than some, you know, some of these retreads. And at, like least Shermer, he, at least he has interesting ideas. Like Shermer's a retread in the sense that he was a head coach no, before, Shermer's but the guy fine. did a great job. And, I think, and, and it's like, even with Andy Reid, we've written about this, we've talked about this. The most innovative coach in the NFL this year was a 55-year-old guy who's been in the league for however long. I mean, it's just a matter of fi- surrounding yourself with the right people. And about, again, building a group of decision makers and idea folks that are genuinely interested and genuinely enthusiastic and curious about the game. Figure it out, NFL. 
All right, buddy. That's all we got. That's what we learned. That's what we learned. Figure Figure it it out. out. Figure it out, guys. All right. That's all we got for today. We'll be back next week to chat with everybody about the combine. We'll be at the combine. We'll be at the combine. Beautiful Indianapolis. And we'll be back every week after that. In Minnesota, someone came up to me. And and they were talking about the podcast stuff, and they said that in Minnesota they tweeted at you, and they were like, "Let's hang out," and you didn't tweet at them, and then they were very angry about it. That happened. Here's the thing: you know how many times that happened in Minnesota because the people in Minnesota are so nice. I know that was the thing. I, it was funny. I went to Philadelphia, and people knew I was there. No one reached no. out in Minneapolis. A no, the reason I say that out. is because people in Annapolis do that too. And they're great. I mean, the Midwest is a wonderful place. I don't think I needed. You know, make my feelings known about that. But yeah, man, the off season's over. We're back, and uh, it's good to be back. And as always, thanks for listening to the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. <laughs>